Hi, I'm Kay Songa, and I'm a meditation teacher at Headspace. I will also be hosting Radio Headspace later this fall. I'm in the studio working on new episodes for you right now. But while we wait, I wanted to introduce you to another podcast that I think you'll love. In hibernation, host and journalist Malika Rao digs into the mysteries of sleep. She dives into the lives of almost a dozen people, each with a story rooted in sleep, and shares those with you in each episode of Hibernation. In one of those stories, Malika explores the question of what the bedroom represents and what the act of sleeping next to someone really means for us. We want to share that story with you here today. You're about to hear the first episode of Hibernation. While you're listening, follow Hibernation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. wonder if I'm not designed for love. I was born to two people who weren't guided by it exactly. My parents are Indian and they had an arranged marriage. They met one time and then got married. Love, maybe it's not in the family DNA. She, she never told me about it. I, I learned about it after she died. Oh, how did it come up? I don't know. We talked about something. It came out. I, Did you have any, like, feelings about that? No, or? no, of course not. I'm talking to, or maybe at, my dad about the night after he and my mom met. He's not a big talker on these matters. In his first language, Kannada, there's not a word for love. I've mostly imagined the big scene based on what I know. They're on the roof of my grandmother's house in Bangalore, India. The sun is bleeding orange all over the sky. The birds are calling in that triumphant way they have in that part of the world. My mom looks gorgeous in a sari. My dad has a cloud of hair. If they get married, she'll move with him to America. They talk like two people on a first date, maybe. Then my dad leaves and my mom does something interesting. Something I think about a lot, but that I'll never really understand. I heard about this from her brother, my uncle. She walks in the house and locks herself in a bedroom. My grandmother apparently freaks out. My uncle tells her to calm down, but my mom stays locked in all night. And then in the morning, she walks out. Yes, she says, she'll marry that stranger from the roof. My name is Malika Rao. I'm a writer, and if you Google me, you might find an essay I wrote called Why Everyone Should Sleep Alone. I wrote it after my divorce. It's basically about how valuable solitude is and how useful bedrooms are at providing it. I mean, my mom made a huge decision in a bedroom all by herself. But I took the argument further. I said we might all be better off, even if we're in a couple, sleeping alone. At some level, I guess I was questioning the value of togetherness at all. But there's something that bothers me about the argument, the small one and the big one. There's something that bothers me about the story about my mom and about my own divorce. 
I guess I wonder about the other side, about what you get when you're not alone. That's how I met Wendy Troxel. Hi, I'm Dr. Wendy Troxel. I'm a senior behavioral scientist at the Rand Corporation and author of Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep. Dr. Troxel studies sleep, but she's also kind of a relationship guru. She's one of the first scientists to think about sleep as a social act, hardwired to be that way since the earliest days of human existence. You know, now it's not that we need to have people sharing a bed with us to protect against, you know, a tiger running through the prairie or, um, but rather just that feeling, that psychological sense of safety and security is really necessary to help us uh, downregulate any sort of vigilance we feel and vigilance uh, would be antithetical to the sleep state. So I think that that's sort of how we've evolved to desire connection at night. Before she wrote her book, Dr. Troxel wrote a paper that brought together a lot of research on couples for the first time. She revealed patterns that hadn't been seen before. One of them stands out to me. Dr. Troxel compiled a group of studies that tracked couples sleeping together. The researchers used instruments called actigraphs to measure movement during sleep. And one thing the data shows is that it's not exactly easy to sleep with someone. Objectively, when couples sleep together, they sleep worse than when they uh, when they sleep apart. Um, and kind of from a physical standpoint, it kind of makes sense. I mean, just from basic physics, you know, you have another human being occupying the same space. There's more opportunity for displacement. There's more opportunity for one partner's movements to affect the other. This makes sense, right? Maybe someone snores, they kick, who knows? They're another person lost in sleep next to you. But then this next part is where things get interesting. Those same studies also tracked the couples when they slept apart. And as you might expect, each person slept more peacefully because, you know, no one's there to disturb you. But then when researchers asked the participants how they thought they slept... Those same people who, you know, objective measures show that they sleep worse while sleeping together versus apart. Most people will say they sleep, they subjectively, they feel that they sleep better while sleeping with a partner and they prefer to sleep with a partner. So what accounts for that disjunct um, or paradox? This paradox, I'm drawn to it. Why do couples prefer to sleep together even if they'd sleep better alone? And what exactly are we trying to measure? It's funny to me that the researchers thought measuring motion was measuring anything, because obviously there's something else going on when people sleep together. We were good bed partners. He slept better than I did, I'll say. Um, He used to always say, well, it won't keep me up at night. Um, And it didn't. He slept really well. That's Michelle Neff Hernandez. I found her through a Google search because I was just trying to see if there's someone out there enacting this paradox, and Michelle turned up. Whenever Phil or I were away on a trip, when one or the other of us was gone, um, whoever was at home would pile pillows on their side of the bed, and it was like a placeholder. So, you know, the pillows would be the placeholder until whichever one of us was gone came back. There were costs to sleeping with Phil. He was an intense guy, 
an exercise enthusiast who woke up every day at 4 a.m. The first time we shared a bed together, he overslept. He woke up at 8 o'clock in the morning, jumped out of bed like it was on fire. And I was like, what happened? He was like, it's 8 o'clock. I was said, I know. He's like, it's 8 o'clock. Like, I'm like, well, where do you have to be? He said, nowhere. I was like, okay, <laughs> you okay then? He was like, how could I sleep till 8 o'clock? So, you know, again, like, we connected in this really beautiful sense early in our relationship. And I think, you know, we both knew that this trust that we had and this ability to be vulnerable in a number of ways um, was different than what we'd experienced before. So Michelle got Phil that very first time sleeping together and they kept going. Mornings with Phil were regimented, but so was nighttime. They had to be in bed by 9, 9.30 at the latest. And my kids were still young enough that they could go to bed at that time. And so we went to bed very early and he would be like in the bed being like, okay, it's time for bed. (laughs) If I hadn't gotten there soon enough, if whatever kid I was dealing with needed extra attention, he was like irritated that I wasn't yet in the bed. Um, And so... And we, we had a very early to bed routine and would he would always be in there first without fail, waiting for me to hurry up and get there. A lot of times we'd wake up and, you know, I would just be completely wrapped up in him and be conscious enough to feel the safety of that. And so, you know, whether our coming to bed led to you know, making love or whether it led to snoring, there was always this sense of a a coming together. There was always the coming together. And that was, okay, we're both here. All right, I'm finally here. We can settle down. And that coming together preempted whatever else might happen and would be the thing that we left in the morning knowing we were going to come back to. What? happens between two people in a bed not I mean obviously the the like sixth grade answer to that is sex you know (laughs) I so I've been single now for a while I've been divorced for a while I haven't slept regularly with someone in a very long time and I sort of almost can't remember or access what it is that that takes place between two people when they're sharing that overnight space, particularly like going to bed together and then waking up together. And I, I don't know, it just sounds like you and Phil had a really um, affectionate, warm relationship. One of the things about Phil in particular, he had lived a life where vulnerability wasn't welcome. And he was very in life and awake. You know, he knew where the exits were. He would not sit in a restaurant with his back to, you know, other people. And so the trust that is shared between people when they sleep is something that's just so precious because you're allowing yourself to be completely vulnerable. And that means that the person you choose to share that bed with, you trust 100%. I told Dr. Troxel about Michelle and Phil, the 4 a.m. wake-up times, the intensity, but also the sweetness of their time in bed. Because 
they sound like an example of that paradox in action. She said it seemed like Michelle understood something about partnership. Her job, in part, was to to help soothe him. And who else but a partner gets to do that? I mean, in a way, that is, I think, one of the greatest privileges of being in a strong and committed relationship. And it's one of the most lovely aspects uh, and functions of close connections that you really do provide that balance for each other. And to me, that suggests that, no, she, she understood that part of her role was helping him to unwind at a reasonably early bedtime so that he could accomplish, you know, these wonderful adventurous things that she also probably loved dearly about him. Yeah, he was a cyclist um, and he had a regular Wednesday evening ride. He and his friend uh, went out. It was the first day of school. And so I pulled into the driveway with a suburban full of children. And we walked in the door as the kids were shedding all their backpacks and things. And he, you know, waved to the kids and they kind of yelled over their shoulder because they were so done. They were ready to be home and not doing school. And uh, he headed out for his bike ride. We kissed goodbye in the driveway. And I walked into the house in 45 About 45 minutes after I was home cooking dinner, I got a phone call, um, and it was someone calling from the side of the road. He had only gotten about three miles before he was hit from behind by a car. And the person on the phone said, you know, your husband's been hit by a car, I think you should come right away. And in my brain, I thought, okay, well, if they're calling me and they're not calling 911, then that must mean, you know, he broke his legs. He's gonna be really upset because he can't go running tomorrow. So I headed out the door to go and collect him, is what I thought. I was going to collect him and take him um, to deal with whatever whatever I would find. What I, what I didn't expect to find was that um, the accident that he was in would end up taking his life just 15 minutes later. So by the time I got to the scene of the accident, he was unconscious. Um, I was able to ride in the ambulance with him, and his life ended there in the hospital. And so within an hour of the time that he left home to go on his ride, my whole life changed. Okay, I've started the recording. Okay. So maybe just walk into the bedroom. I am in the bedroom. So what... What do you see, like, I don't know, like, do you have any memories of, like, building it with mummy, designing it? Well, I mean, mostly it's all her doing. Uh, She chose the bed and that furniture, you know. Mm. And, uh... When did you buy the bed? I forget, uh... A few years before uh, she died, uh, maybe. Let me see if I can see. Sometimes I don't think so. What are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking to see if there's a date on the um, on the. Furniture I've got it in the drawer here. Let's see if there's a date. That's my dad. 
Right now, he's trying to find the date of purchase for the bed he and my mom bought a few years before she died. I didn't realize until he just now told me, but their previous bed, which she'd also chosen, was kind of meant for the whole family. It was king size, which she'd insisted on in case me and my brother wanted to sleep with them. Then we'd grown up, and she'd insisted on a new bed, a queen. In a funny way, we are closer, you know, so that was a good fun part. (laughs) Technically, my dad has his own bedroom now, but it doesn't feel that way when you walk in. Signs of my mom are everywhere, at her sink, in her closet, as if she's about to walk in and get dressed for work. She's really there, though, for me, in the bed. Everywhere else, her spirit is diffuse, the reminders scattered. But the bed was a kind of home where she spent so much unbroken time. Her side can seem to still hold her presence, as if it's a shell she just slipped out of. That effect, the shape of her, reminds me of a morning when I was a kid. My mom had been patting my back the night before to put me to sleep. She lay beside me in my bed. I vividly remember asking her not to leave. She said she wouldn't, but in the morning she was gone. When I woke up, I realized she'd lied, that she'd left. But I also felt like I'd slept all night, as if she were there. I felt her even when I woke. People can exist without being there. When I came out of the room of finally getting all the kids to bed and um, stood outside the bedroom door and just thought, am I going in there? But honestly, there was nowhere else to go. There were people everywhere. I was like, okay, well, it's just my room. I have to go in there. And so I opened the door and my mom had um, piled all the pillows on Phil's side of the bed. You know, his placeholder was there. So I fell asleep that night after tossing and turning and... Um, his alarm would always go off at four in the morning. And so his alarm went off because I hadn't thought to change it. And I was laying in bed with my eyes closed, hearing his alarm going off. And of course, I'd not slept much or slept well. And so I wasn't really conscious. And I thought, oh, why isn't he getting the alarm? He's usually so quick to jump out of bed. And so I kept my eyes closed and I took my hand and slid it across the sheets and... Uh, I can still feel the cold sheets under my fingers and, you know, the softness of the pillow that was supposed to be him. And I realized then, you know, in that moment in the bed that this was the beginning of what my life would look like going forward. When you were sleeping that night, I mean, did you feel his absence that night? I didn't feel his absence until I woke up and realized that his alarm was going off. Um, But going forward from that time, um, I definitely did feel his absence. And in some ways, that absence was also comforting because it reflected that this experience really did happen, that he was missing. Because it's the weirdest thing about grief and death is that after someone dies, really fairly quickly, people stop saying their name. They stop coming up in regular conversation. And so their absence looms 
in a way, but also you're missing their presence in conversation, in acknowledgement of other people that they lived. And so a lot of times the struggle to be in that empty bed and have his space be missing was one of the ways that I recognized his his life, like he had lived. If if it felt like that place could be filled, then somehow it would be as if he hadn't been there at all. Threaded through my essay, the one on sleeping alone, is a review of a book, A History of the Bedroom by a Scholar. In it, she mentions figures through history who slept alone, married or not. Many were writers and many were women. Virginia Woolf was both, and it was she who equated privacy with self-development, particularly for women, in her essay, A Room of One's Own. So often the costs of companionship can seem to fall harder on a woman. She shifts her needs, handles the kids, rushes to bed at a time that suits him. His adventures set the schedule more than hers. Then again, marriage is complicated. My ex and I, we didn't have clear rules for anything. When to go to bed, when to wake up. We were haphazard in bed and in life. When I wrote my essay, it felt right to me that I wrote parts in bed, as if I'd chosen a new partner, self-development in Virginia Woolf's terms. Still, there was a section in the book that gave me pause. It's about a documentary by the filmmaker Agnes Varda, set in a fishing village in France full of widows. And the thing about these women is they sleep on their side of the bed long after their husbands die. They maintain his spot night after night as if he were still there. I read that detail and I couldn't shake the feeling that something important happened in those beds, something that can only happen between people. If you've ever had this experience, you'll know exactly what I mean. And if you haven't had this experience, I hope someday you do. And that is that it wasn't a dream like like a dream that was me processing something in my subconscious. It was, it felt so clearly like a visitation from him. And the only way I can say that you could see the difference was that he was sort of iridescent and that the entire dream was a conversation between him and I. Michelle's telling me about this one day. It was a few weeks after Phil had died. Their friends had had dreams of him by then, but she hadn't. When she slept, she tried not to touch his side. There was the print of him there. It still, for me, represented his, you know, his physical presence. And so I didn't, I didn't want to mess that up in any way. I wanted to stay on my side and leave his side with his print there. She was also scared to wear his clothes, scared to wear off his scent. But that one day, she did. And I was just desperate for him. So I put on one of his sweatshirts and I looked at the bed. I just felt like I'm just going to lay down for a nap. I looked at the bed and I thought, oh, maybe I'll just lay on his side. And I, I just thought, okay, it's okay. One time, like you can lay on his side one time. It won't ruin this. It won't wear in the shape and the scent's not going to be all gone in the sweatshirt. And so I just curled up and laid down and slept for the first time peacefully since he died. In the dream, or visitation, 
She was standing in the kitchen of their house, where there's a back door. And when I turned towards the door as it was opening, I couldn't believe it was him. And so I run to him and like jump, you know, do the full jump, arms and legs, like, oh my gosh, there you are. And, um, you know, I, I tell him I love him and I miss him. And he says he misses me too, um, which really, there was something about just that that was so meaningful. It's like, okay, that means that I'm not the only one missing us. You're missing us too. It's clear in this experience that I'm having that he knows he's dead and I know he's dead. This is not a dream where I think he's alive. In this dream, I am clear that he is dead and that he and I are having a conversation about the fact that he's dead. You know, I'm talking to him and, you know, just like, bleh, telling him all the things. Um, And I remember him just listening. That was the longest we'd ever been apart. And I had so much to tell him. So I'm just babbling. And then... um, At one point, I said, okay, I just, I really need to know, can you hear me when I'm talking to you? And he says, well, that depends on if the Raiders are playing. Then he just smiles his signature smile, and then he's gone. It was so him. Everything about the dream, the way he caught me when I jumped on him, the way he listened to me when I babbled, the way he expressed that he missed me like I missed him. Um, But in particular, his sense of humor, to end on that note, it was also like him not to say goodbye. He, He really hated goodbyes. And so he was the guy who would leave the party and you'd be like, hey, where'd Phil go? He left without saying goodbye. He left without saying goodbye. Could Michelle have had that experience anywhere else? It seems to me she had to have it in the bed. The place where they slept, on Phil's side, which was like a portal. Something was in that bed. Something that can't be measured. After the break, what happens in an empty bed? That essay I wrote, I have a funny relationship to it. There were questions I wanted to ask that I couldn't, places I wanted to go that lay beyond the border of my reach. I was arguing for solitude, but what I really wanted was for someone to explain to me what's so great about companionship. And I guess that's where I landed on this interest in people who are widowed. Loss clarifies what's essential in life, right? It's also hard. After Michelle's loss, she looked for others who could help her understand how to keep going. My entrance sort of into the community of widowhood was around my desire in my early widowhood to figure out how to do this thing. How do I be a widowed person? I was 35 years old. I had three... Uh, young preteens at home and I had three adult stepchildren and I just had never even considered what what it would be like to be widowed and so I found myself struggling through questions like do you still sleep on the same side of the bed and so with armed with this 50 practical questions I went looking for other widows to ask those questions of and consistently one of the questions I asked was do you still sleep in your same bed? 
do you sleep on the same side of the bed? And without fail, there would be a story there. And so it was already a question for me that drove me as to, as to what do people do? How do you manage this empty feeling that's there? How do you return to your room when the room is absent the presence of the person with whom you shared all the things? I have this image in my mind. It's of a shell with all sorts of texture that can't be seen by the naked eye. But then you drop a piece of paper on top and rub a charcoal stick and you can see the shell in a different way. The contours, the complexity appear on the page. That idea of the bed without a person, it feels to me like a rubbing like a copy of the original that shows you all the things that were so special about it, but it's not the original. The shell, in this case, is gone. Michelle heard stories that brought home how difficult it can be to face that empty bed, to see the shape of a relationship that's gone. There's one in particular about this woman who never went back to the house where her, after her husband died and immediately began a road trip with her children, which lasted for a year because she was that determined not to go back to the space they had. And even when she settled into a new home with her children, she did not have a bedroom of her own. She had, I guess she, what you would call a bedroom. She had clothes, but she didn't have a bed in there. She slept on the couch I think she told me it took her three years before she had a bedroom of her own. Um, but this person never went back to their house. After her husband died in a car accident, she just couldn't. Michelle runs an organization for widows now, a support group called Soaring Spirits, with members all over the world. It grew out of her initial quest to get answers to her questions on how to live as a widow. She runs conferences, manages an online network, and she started to piece together this collage of meaning that resides in the bedroom. You can be yourself out in the world, you can manage all your stuff, um, but at the end of the day, when you come back to the bed, you still trust that person enough to lay down next to them and allow yourself to be completely vulnerable. So when you're widowed and you lay down in that space... Now there's a there's a completely different vulnerability. It's like I'm I'm here in this world by myself and the nighttime is when all the questions happen and did I do the right thing? What's weighing on my mind right now? And if your partner is there, that may be for many people that's the time when they share secrets where they discuss problems, where they finally have the five minutes that's not a phone ringing or a TV blaring or a kid in need of something. It's just two people in the dark. And that absence after there's only one person in the dark and the missing of the trust that you shared and the vulnerability of knowing I I'm going to trust you with this time. You know, I'm going to be sound asleep. I don't know what you're going to do. I'll be fine because I have you. That's gone. And it's it becomes for many widowed people a terrifying place. That terrifying place, that's sort of the origin point for the whole act of sleeping with someone. 
Dr. Troxell in her book explains threat as the basis for social sleep from practically the beginning of human history. Those feelings of needing safety and security at night, that in many ways is hardwired into our bodies. And sleep itself is a highly vulnerable position to be in. You know, you're lying down, you're semi-conscious, um, eyes closed, and you are, you know, vulnerable to potential threats from the environment. And yet we absolutely have to sleep to survive. Uh, we know that from substantial science. And so how do we as human beings derive that sense of safety and security? Well, it's truly kind of embedded in our DNA that we get that from our connection with others. So we're hardwired to sleep with others. And we're also hardwired to grow close to those we sleep with. Because once you do lay down with someone, you invite in a process that can essentially chemically connect you. Oxytocin is known as the love or social hormone. It's produced, um, you know, among lactating women during breastfeeding, but also during sexual activity and also just close contact with a close other. So holding hands, massage, cuddling can release oxytocin. And what oxytocin does, it sort of acts as a salve on the body. Um, it helps to also dampen cortisol responses. It can um, lower blood pressure. It can bring on a relaxation response, which should set you up for sleep success that night. Also, just the act of sharing a bed and that time together, if it's used wisely, uh, can be a time where you get to kind of unwind and sort of unload you know, the stresses of your day. And if that's done with someone who you feel close to and confide to, there's sort of nothing more powerful than being able to kind of discharge that, you know, any angst of the day and share it with somebody who you know holds you in the palm of their hand. I mean, were you tempted then to sleep on his side again to manufacture a visitation with him? Yes, I definitely did do that and it didn't work. <laughs> and you know, and when I and what I found personally was that eventually as I healed and grew that I started naturally taking up more space on the bed. And so it wasn't so much like I moved to his space, it was more like I moved into the middle and that I owned the space as my own without really taking up his space. And then what happened with the bed? And then, well, that bed ended up eventually um, needing to be replaced. Um, but I, I do want to also mention that one of the things that made sleeping in the bed possible was during that eight-week period, I repainted my room. I changed the, the linens and I, I changed the color of the room. I just made the space my own because every time I walked in and saw that bed sitting there looking just exactly like it did when he was alive, it felt like he died over again. I hated walking into the room and having to look at everything being exactly the same and so completely different. And so for me, changing the room was a first step towards letting go of the specific bed. When my kids came in after the remodel was done, first of all, my sister and I, this is 
us together painting my bedroom crying and you know it's like covering up the walls with the old paint I mean the new paint was covering what used to be there it was a very emotional experience and I moved the bed I changed everything about the bed I bought a headboard we didn't have a headboard before and so um I changed everything wow what color did you paint the walls I painted the walls a very pretty creamy color, um, but I did the whole room in light blues and browns. And so when my kids walked into the room, one of my boys said, Mom, this looks like a girl's room. And I said, it is a girl's room. In my own way, I know this story. I've kind of lived it. After my divorce, I set about building a life of my own, a room of my own. It wasn't easy, but it felt like an overdue reclamation. Like I was finally taking ownership of my life, turning my room into a girl's room, as Michelle did. But in Michelle's story, someone new showed up, a guy named Michael. At first, he slept on a blow-up bed in the guest room. Then he moved into her bedroom. Now they're married. I feel a little twinge of interest when I hear about second acts to do with love. I ask about it, almost like how you'd ask a person about a certain result. How did you get your tomatoes to grow like that? How do you get your mind to change? Dr. Troxel, she told me a story that feels like an answer. I lost my father when I was young, and my parents had a love affair uh, of the century, you know, a truly beautiful relationship. And Some of my strongest memories, in part because they were towards the end of his life, but I have very vivid images of my mom cuddling with my dad um, in bed in the last days of his life and just, you know, spooning him, sort of just holding him. He was home from the hospital in in hospice care. I don't know if this is relevant or or anything, but, um, you know, one thing when it comes to relationships after um, someone has has lost a a true love. And my mom actually said this, is that, you know, when you have your first child, you think that you'll never be able to love something again, you you know, to that extent. And it's so true. And yet you have a second and you do. So the heart's capacity to love and expand is immeasurable and wonderful. And it's one of our signs of resilience, but the heart is complicated and needs sometimes to have some space to adjust to that new arrangement. I like that idea of the heart as a place. I think of Michelle rearranging her bedroom and how that helped rearrange her heart. I think of my dad in his bedroom, me and my own, because to me that story is also about family about how much we learn about love from the model of our parents. I'm not sure what to make of the model of mine. I started this episode thinking of my mom alone in a bed. She said yes to marriage without love having formed. Then she died, and I could see the shape of love in my dad's bedroom. Maybe not the kind that leads to second acts, though. Love as afterthought, a bonus if it happens. Still, if parents model for their kids, kids model for their parents, too. Who knows what I'll do. 
So this is me um, in my apartment, uh, about to brush my teeth and then gonna go to bed. Um, and when I look around my apartment, I kind of see <laughs> a version of the apartment that I had when I was married. Um, a lot of things look the way they did when I was living in an entirely different place with another person in it because I think I kind of dominated um, with the choices. Same bed frame, but you know, who didn't replace that because it was a good one, always. But then like I do wake up and I miss having someone to say good morning to to ask how their day, what their day is, what's gonna happen. I do, I miss, I miss all of that, but I'm proud of my independence and I know it's given me a sense of authenticity in my own life that I didn't exactly feel before. Hibernation is brought to you by Headspace Studios in partnership with Spoke Media. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow us in Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. Our show is written and hosted by me, Malika Rao. We're produced by senior producer James Kim, with help from myself, Erica Huang, Brigham Mosley, Demira Pierre, and research by Hannah Ray Montgomery. Our coordinating producer is Sharita Lynn Solis, with additional production help from Cody Hoffmachel, Kelly Kolf, and Will Short. Original music and sound design by Erica Huang, with engineering by AVF Creative. Additional music from Firstcom. Our spoke executive producers are Keisha TK Dutess, with Keith Reynolds and Aliyah Tavakolian. Our Headspace executive producers are Leah Sutherland with Morgan Seltzer and Sam Rogaway. Special thanks to the folks you heard from today, Michelle Neff-Hernandez and Wendy Troxell.